Good news, you're here just in time. Here's another Laneway Talks. Hi, Jim, and welcome to Laneway Talks. Good morning, Vincent. I'm very well. Thank you. Um, Jim, let's start from the beginning. Where did you start? Were you learning guitar from a very early age and then develop from there? Or did you just pick up a guitar and start yourself, you know, and teach yourself? Um, yeah, I guess um, not like I wasn't like a six-year-old, you know. That's what I would call like very early. Sometimes people do, you know, parents get their, their kids playing at those tender ages. No, it came out of the blue for me, but... Um, I was about 12, I think, when I got 12, 13, when I got uh, a ukulele. Yeah. And then it went on from there that progressed into a guitar. So it would have been about 14 or 15 or something like that when, when I got my first um, guitar. And that was an acoustic guitar. I mean, that's quite very- late, isn't it, really, when you think about it? From, um, you know, you're a teenager and you're picking up the yeah. guitar. So, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, go on. Well, I mean, um, the reason I did it, this is interesting to me, you know, so hopefully um, somebody might like to hear this. What got me into playing an instrument was the fact that there was this very interesting character that lived over the road from us in suburban D.Y. Mm. Um, who used to play banjo and he was, and I think he used to play with Ray Price and some of those uh, earlier um, trad um kind of players and he was a very artistic guy he did a lot of paintings and he used to win the Brookvale show every year with his paintings that he did Mm. to the point where they had to ask him don't put one in Merv Mervyn Chambers was his name don't put one in give someone else a chance Uh, and he didn't go out to work he invented things from home and he invented these little plastic tips uh, that used to you could use for a myriad of things they ended up in hospitals and on the ends of little uh, ornaments with things with sharp it, spikes, legs or whatever, these little rubber tips. Yep. And he made quite a lot of money out of that, so he was a different kind of guy. Anyway, he used to play banjo at our parties, and my parents liked the party, and um, yeah, that rubbed off on me. So tell, tell, um, tell me, did this was what maybe, how old are you now, Jim? Well, this is before I got the... Uh, this is what led up to getting the, the uh, guitar, the ukulele. The ukulele, because yep. yeah, because um, Merv Chambers could play ukulele like anybody really that plays banjo and guitar. You can always play a uke, you know. Yeah. So uh, what happened was Merv Chambers used to play at my parents' parties in the double garage, mm. and uh, every time he played, the whole party would lift up, and I, I used to, and you know what it's like when you're a kid and your parents are having a few drinks and you're a kid and you've got your other um, friends around you, uh, it's good mischief, you know. But I remember um, I remember when he played the banjo, I was just transfixed. And the adults just went sort of crazier, you know, really enjoying themselves. It's, and, it's quite a colourful instrument, the banjo. My uncle played the banjo and it... Yeah. It's it's quite colourful. There's a lot of depth to a banjo uh, as opposed to just a guitar on its own, I, I find, anyway. Well, he used, and he played rhythm style. He didn't play the old Scruggs finger-picking yeah. style. Yes. He played, you know, banjo of the time. Yeah. And he would, but he'd play the melodies like Bye Bye Blackbird and he'd play the melodies of the tunes, um, you know, and, and it was very dance danceable. Right. So it really made the party uh, ignite. And I used to be always at him throughout the night 
Mr. Chambers, can I go over and get your banjo now? And he'd go, not now, James. Yeah. I was known as James back then. Mm. And he'd have to have a few more drinks, you know, To and then all of a sudden he'd go, yes, go and get the banjo. And I'd run over and get it. Anyway, that led into me getting a ukulele and he showed me a few chords. And he said to my mum, after I'd only been at it for a couple of weeks, he said, I think um, young James has got a bit of talent here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it led on from there. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And then you, you got to that guitar. Now, with the guitar... Did you? Yep. Did you teach yourself, or did you have lessons? Yes. Yeah. I'm. I, I think it's fair for me to say that I'm a self-taught player. But I'll, I'll give you the the absolute truth on that. But um, yeah. Now I'm a self-taught player. Yeah. When when I when I got the guitar, I went down to a, a music store in Manly that mm-hmm. was on the beachfront, and a lovely old pommy guy with the eternal um, cigarette hanging off the end of his uh, lips. Yeah used to uh, teach a bit of guitar, although he was a piano accordion player, but he could play a few chords. So I went down there and had about, I think I had about six lessons, tops. Yeah. And at the end of that, he just said to my mum, and he used to take me down there, I can't teach him anything anymore now. He's he's really got something going here. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so then after that, so that, that's one lot of lessons. Then I went, did a couple of lessons in Guitar City yeah. just to make the, uh, the the bus trip in. Uh, I think I did about maybe three there or something like that, yeah. and that was the end of that. And apart from that, I I am a self-taught player. Right. Yes. So from that yes. teenage age... Um, what was there for you, you? You know, you're self-taught, as we've yep. just uh, just heard. Did you get into yep. a band, or were you there just practicing on your own? Well, I was um, just practicing. I got an, eventually got an electric guitar, practicing on my own. And I'd fallen in love with the shadows. Yeah, and I met a guy that was a little. So I'm around about sort of 15 now, I guess. I met a guy that was a bit older than me who could play. He had a Fender Stratocaster, which I didn't. And uh, and he had the exact guitar that Hank Marvin played in the Shadows, and he could play all of the Shadows tunes. Well, you're going to, you're and going back a bit far for me there, the Shadows. I'm not that old yet. <laughs> I'm 62. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well, I'm I'm 72. So yeah. Shadows are mid 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yep. for sure. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. So um, the Shadows were were huge, you know, for the the, the time. Mm. So. Uh, this um, guy called Cliff Lambert, he could play all of the Shadows tunes. I said, well, how do you do that? Because I, I can't get the shoot music from the local um, record store yeah. for all the songs, yeah. which is what I had been doing, trying to sort it out from there, learn the tunes. Yeah. And he said, oh, I figure them out by ear. And I said, what, do you, what does that mean? I said, I don't even know what that means. He said, I, I play the record and I figure out what chords they're playing. Then I figure out the melody and uh, I memorize it all. I said, can you show me how to do that? He said, yeah. <laughs> so I went over, and that's probably one of the best lessons in my life. He well, showed me how he did it, lifting the you know, the, the arm up onto the, dropping it on the record, and then showing me how to recognise whether it was a minor chord or a major chord. So I said, how can you figure out chords? They've all got six notes in them, because I just thought they the six strings on the guitar. Yeah. So you can see how naive I was, and... Uh, Anyway, I took to that, and and then I ended up in it with a duo with him. We had little um, jackets we had with S, a uh, little S embroidered on it. We were the Strays, and we used to play. Uh, we used to play milk bars and things, and play the shadows, tunes of the shadows. Well, tell me, you know, let's say between nineteen sixty five and yep. 
1970. If I go between that period, I want your opinion yeah. on how the sound of the six-string guitar yeah. developed from that, let's say, the shadows. I was kidding. I do know who the shadows were. But you know that twangy sound to, if you get yep. to 68, 69, and then definitely into 70, but I suppose 69, 70, you start to get that, that rock sound out of a guitar which you didn't quite have back then. What was that? What was going on between there? How did that occur? What's your opinion on that? My opinion is that the uh, predominantly clean sounds that, uh, like the shadows, um, used, but yeah. with lots of um, delay, one of those effects yeah. on, the, on, the, yep. on, the, on the lead instrument, yep. that particular sound and a, and a clean, fairly cleanish um, sound through the amp yeah. suited that music. And so long came... British bands like the Stones and the Kinks, yeah. and they started to get wanted more dirty. And then I think story has it that uh, I think it was Ray Davies, uh, oh, yes. the guitar player in the Kinks, yeah. ended up either damaging a speaker in in a in a speaker box, yeah. and then went, oh, oh, we like the sound. And then people started <laughs> razor blading the speaker cones to make them fizz. Yes, yeah, and yeah. that's how that. But then again, the, I mean, the blues guys were using dirtier sounds in the you know, on the other side of the Atlantic from mm. uh, from uh, England, mm. uh, the other side of the big pond, if that's the right one. Yeah. Um, so, but then that, that's that's where the, a lot of the British guys got their influence from those yeah. caps as well as yeah. it's well documented. Yeah. And so the, the, the distortion thing started, I think, around with the Kings and the Rolling Stones mm. and all that. Then all of a sudden it started to become people started to make distortion pedals. Oh, right. Because you, they realise that you, it's pretty uh, pretty hardcore when you start slashing the speakers and a lot of the amps, which, which were Fender amps back then and stuff, yeah. you couldn't turn them up that loud to make them distort because they're killing people, you know, yeah. with the volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it all kind of took on off from there with the uh, with the idea of distortion. I think. Well, tell you know? me. Um, so we we get. Let's say you're you're doing your milk bars and all that kind of thing. You're honing your skills as a young musician. And yes. uh, let's get to the early 70s, because when does Crossfire start? 73 or 74? Yeah, I think it was around then. So, well, I just have to bridge the gap a little yeah. bit there. Around the yep. 70, what happened was I, I was really kicking on with my playing. Yeah. And uh, we I had a local band and we lost our singer. We put an ad in the, in the, in the paper and lo and behold, who should turn up to audition in the garage at DY with my um, little trio, mm -hmm. guitar, bass and drums, Kerry Bedell. <laughs> okay. Can you believe it? Look, a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people, younger people will be listening to this, have got no idea who we're talking about, but yes. They won't know who Kerry is, no, a lot of people no. won't. But no. a very, uh, look, I'll say very famous and very TV, to me, very TV-orientated singer. Yeah, and Kerry was... Um, Oh, like she's one of the world's greatest singers. Mm, she's mm. right up there with um, Barbara Streisand or yep. any any you know yeah. anyone anybody that's big. And yeah. and in fact, yeah. she started to make a career in uh, uh, the MGM over in Las Vegas. They just went. She's the next one. Right. So Kerry Kerry's up. rolled up. So what? So uh, anyway, you you listen to her sing. Go. Well, we've got something happening here. Yeah, yeah. We listen to her and we go. Wow. She wants to sing with us, and she did. <laughs> and we started doing, um, formed a band called The Affair, and we started doing 
tunes, Dusty Springfield tunes, and then Kerry kind of turned me towards jazz. Now, hold on, Stu, now, by... uh, Jim, hold on. So we're around 1970 now? Yep. Right. So we, we've yeah, actually... 1969, Right. Yeah. So what we've got, we've got the Led Zeppelin era starting. You've got Deep Purple happening. You've got... So yep. we're moving into... A, we've had that... The Psychedelica, you know, is yep. all happening. And you guys are doing what style of music? Well, that, that's that's the weirdest thing to describe. What um, uh, the affair did mm. was um, it wasn't anything to do with um, rock per se, or mm-hmm. any of that that um, that Led Zeppelin or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, it, this was to do with um, more soul music, yes. Aretha Franklin type yeah. tunes yep. we used yep. to do, and Dusty Springfield type soul, which is yeah. kind of like a soul music in yes. a way. Yeah, uh, and we but we started dabbling in jazz and and did arrangements of a lot of uh, famous jazz tunes at the time, mm. like God Bless the Child and tunes like that. And, and often we'd use big band arrangements and I'd, we'd try and break them down and play them with uh, in a guitar trio type setting, if you can believe that. Yeah. This is because of my interest in jazz now had really grown through Kerry, you see. Yes. And I became transfixed with it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah. that... So you got that happening, the affair. Does that lead yep. on to crossfire or not yet? In a, uh, yes, in a way, yeah. uh, the affair because of the the jazz connotation. Yeah, it started up. A uh, few other things happened, and then um, I ended up going over to. It would have been about seventy two, I think. Yeah, uh, going over to England to because uh, I met my wife, my beautiful wife Jules. Yes, here, and she was a pom. We went back to uh, Northampton to get married, and then I... And this was all prior to Crossfire, getting married? This, this, this is prior to Crossfire. Wow. And this, yeah. is, and this is how Crossfire came about, because so I'm over in England, got yeah. married. Yeah. I was, you know, going to do some gigs, stay there for a while, but it really didn't like what was going on too much for me. And um, I had already had this offer to go to Hong Kong and do a six-month contract in a, one of the hotels. There was some... Um, ex-Pat Aussies and oh, a yeah. New Zealand finger. It's um, different. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I jumped at that and went, okay, I, is that still on the, on the table? And they yeah. said, yeah, we still need a guitar player. So we yeah. went straight from being married straight into Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah. And that's where, this is where it started because that's where I met Greg Lyon. Oh. And heard his amazing bass playing because yes. he'd been in the East for seven years. Yeah. He went over uh, it, to entertain the troops in the Vietnam period gotcha. and stayed on. Yeah. And when you were in that neck of the wood of the world over there with all the Yanks and everything, you had access to all these records that we weren't hearing back here. Mm-hmm. So his hotel room looked like um, some sort of hi-fi shop. Oh, you know? really? It's just full of <laughs> turntables and yeah. reel-to-reels and things and yeah. records and stuff. And he'd been listening to all this really hip stuff. So he was playing very advanced kind of bass playing at the time. Yeah. And then Mick Kenny came over and joined the band on yes, trumpet. Right. And we we all, you know, liked what we were doing there. I broke the contract because I uh, got sick of living in a hotel room with my new wife. Yeah. And came back to Australia and I we all agree uh, that is all. That is Mick Kenny and Craig Lyons. We agree. When they finally went their way back to Sydney, yeah. we'll get a band together and we'll start attempting to play some of this stuff that we listen to the Chick Career and, and the Crusaders play. Oh, yes, Chick Career, yeah. How it Fantastic. Started. Yep. 
And so, okay, yeah. so, um, so the three of you are the nucleus of the band at that stage, correct? At that stage, yes. Right. So what did you yeah. do? Did you just contact people or put ads out? To yeah, get we just contacted people. Uh, we And I remember we started in French's Tavern yep. uh, on Oxford Street, a wine bar. Yep. And we, uh, uh, there's a young bass player called John Young, yep. a really interesting bass player. And I believe it was John Proud playing the drums and me and Mick playing uh, keyboards and we and Greg, that's right, Greg wasn't there at that stage. Yeah, it was John Young. Greg came back in on it. Greg was away or something or other. We were waiting for Greg, I think, to get back. Yeah. That's right. We started up. We used to play in French. Well, this is all a long time ago. Yeah. We were playing in French's. Yes, and French's, I remember, yeah. Yep. Well we, known. Used to, we used to play like one song per set. Right. <laughs> we just started up and that, it'd take, take, you know, 30 minutes to finish the thing. <laughs> well, t- tell me, um, uh, with Crossfire then, did it take a couple of years to get a following or was, and I'll say this in the nicest possible way, was there no yep. following here and the following was overseas? Oh, no, the, um, it took a couple of years, you know, like a little while, not not so long to get a following because yeah. we ended up downstairs in uh, French's, yeah, French's because yeah. they renovated, yeah. yeah, and French's Tavern. And then uh, we really built an audience by then and there was, yeah. there was really a good buzz about us and that's how we ended up getting our first um, record done because one of the... Uh, Which was A&R the first... Guys, what was the first record? Just called um, Crossfire, the one with the... Um, hand-drawn sort of um, images of all the players on the front. Let me have a look. I just want to... I'm going to look, I'm looking that up as we speak because I've got... Uh, that's that's Jim, the very first one. Jim Kelly up and uh, with Crossfire. There's so many albums that you've got. It's unbelievable. So I've, the, the first one we've got up is 1978, Direct to Disc. No. Was, and then I've got well East of Where... Then we've got historical rock odds, and then live at Monterey, and then we. So we don't have that one, okay? So you probably need to send me a copy of that. I, I cannot understand why you haven't. But, um, yeah. So I that's can, the first I can, one. I can get a copy. So is that the is that uh, the fir- that's the first record, right? Yeah. And is there another one before Direct to Disc seventy eight? Yeah. This 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 is before that. Right. Okay. So we've got a few we're missing here, so we'll, we'll get on to that. I'll tell you something that um, that's interesting with, I suppose, the Live at Monterey. Um, from uh, Mar- Live at Montreux. Montreux, Montreux sorry. No, yeah, Montreux, yeah. sorry. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, I, was, uh, I was a taught drummer, so I, I play jazz style, so, um, but I'm a rock drummer. But yeah. my, my um, test of my... <laughs> fortitude and skill sets was to be able to uh, practice to live at Monterey, right? And at yep. the time, I was listening to a lot of PFM, you know, the Italian band. I don't know if you know PFM. Oh, it's ringing a bell. Well, they're, a, they're an Italian people. jazz fusion rock band, okay? Um, okay. Probably in the same reign as you guys. I did a little yeah. bit of singing, and but a lot of just instrumental. And uh, and then there was Brand X with um, with Phil Collins. I don't know if you know Brand X. 
Uh, Phil Collins had a band called Brand X, which was just purely a jazz band, uh, jazz rock. Right. And yeah. and I that was and that's how I measured my skill set to see if I could actually play, which I could never keep up. Um, but that's why I'll be interested to see on these earlier records. So, where do you go to record that first record? We went into EMI in Sydney studios. Yeah. And did you yep. did you did you spend some time, or was this a rush? record as was a lot of the cases back then in and out within uh, a couple of days uh, yeah no, we probably spent more i can't remember exactly we were very well rehearsed by the way when we went yeah. in we knew what we were doing we yeah. weren't trying to sort things out we'd already sorted them out we were just trying to get good performance yeah yeah um, which is the way you should really do it in the studio i think mm. um try to sort out as little as possible like get with you in other words you yeah. know yeah, yeah, yeah. bring the idea with you you know instead of waiting for it to hatch while you're there oh, absolutely um, so record yeah. that and release that through who that was released through emi right and yeah. then what was the reaction like to that record oh great we uh we ended up with um like a following mm. It really became a cult kind of following, and eventually we made our way to Melbourne. And boy, did that knock our socks off! We did ten nights. We could do ten nights in a row in Melbourne, ten different hotels, and we had every place jam packed. Well, it's with, the music uh, capital of Australia. With a queue out the front. Yeah, yeah you, you know, know it's the music capital of Australia. There's no doubt about it down here in Melbourne. Um, as, well, it, it as certainly, like, it certainly is say. now. I know Sydney isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but so you've come down here, you're, you're touring that. And, you know, um, if you think of Australia as the pub rock uh, country of the world and, you know, we, you know, our pub rock bands, a jazz, yeah. would you call yourself jazz fusion rock or jazz rock It went at that stage? Well... I think you know, I don't. We we didn't ever know what to call it, mm. but it, it it had the you know jazz and rock influences, mm. and then after that the word fusion appeared. Yeah. I think yeah. after those terms, yeah. so then it was like you were either called a fusion band or a jazz fusion band or a fusion rock band. It it, it didn't matter to us, but but that's yes. Well, jazz, to be rock, doing fusion, what you were you know. doing when we we're a pub rock band, and to be able. To, to do nights like that and get all that work, I think is just was phenomenal at the time because we were so blues orientated or that blues pub rock. Oh yeah, it was. It was. See, it can't happen again. It actually can't happen again no, because I agree with you. everything in music it's connected to uh, a social um, strata and structure of the time. Mm. And what what had happened back then when Crossfire appeared. And we went to Melbourne. Mm. No one had ha ever heard anything remotely like this. Yeah, exactly. Live, like yeah. they may have heard it on some records or something, mm. but not live. Like nothing like it. No, that's so I agree it with just, you. Yeah, it just floored people. You yeah. know what we were up to. So tell me, you two, you you're playing that record. How long between yeah. then and the next record? Have were you were you conjuring up new songs as you went along, or did you have to? Oh sit yeah. down and all right, uh, because the band was actually, well, I suppose, there was a few members there, wasn't there? It wasn't just a guitar, bass, drums and a singer or something, you know. There was never a singer. No, I guitar, know that. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Guitar, bass, drums, um, keys, and then Mick Kenny played uh, uh, horn in it as well, yeah. played um, 
Muckley flugelhorn yeah. at that when he was at the keyboards and uh, and percussion. Ian Bloxham. Oh, hold percussion. on! You say no singing, but we do have the album with Michael Franks. Yeah, but Michael Franks was um, uh, Michael Franks was uh, he's an American artist. Yes, he used us as as his backing band. Ah, gotcha. Okay, okay, right. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. Um, so, how did you go about getting to that second record? Was it? So the, well, it just. Um, I can't. I'd have to look at the get the albums out and see the chronological order of them. Actually, no, no. What I mean, remind me. what I mean by that, Jim, were you writing as you went along? Would you, you know? Oh yeah, I see. Yeah, I, I see what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean, we. Um, what happened with the writing was um, Mick Kenny, the keyboard player, was doing um, the kind of the all the writing right in the earlier days, and. Um, he had a particular um, style, which I think he was one of the greatest writers in, in uh, fusion music the world over to me, and a lot of people say that too, yeah. by the way. And uh, we realised that his compositions, maybe we needed to get a little more of the Crusaders sort of um, funky vibe in there. So I went, okay, I'll have a go at writing a tune. Mm. And I did. I wrote a tune called Remember the Trees. Mm. That was the first song I ever wrote, and it was good enough to go on that very first Crossfire record. Oh, Okay. So what happened was other band members wanted to join in the writing, yeah. and what what we discovered was Mick and I were so prolific writing so much, we really didn't have a need to have anybody else. And finally, we got to the point where we went, no, we're going to keep it as the two of us as the writers because it keeps an identity uh, in it, because it, everyone's got their own style of putting tunes together. Mm. So we wanted to keep it a little bit more pure with just two writers, which we did. For, for all time, really, you know. Wow, that's a, it's an interesting yeah. way to approach it and to and to navigate the band's path. I mean, um, you know, there there is obviously there's the bands that everybody tries to contribute and everybody's trying to fight over the publishing and therefore a song. You've got the U2s who who made it a band effort and did that from the very beginning. Um, everybody was a writer on every song, didn't matter who wrote it. Powderfinger did the same. Yeah. And so there's all the, I like that, and that's yours is a different approach and that, that what you're saying, to keep that uh, steady um, flow of similar type music or whatever, you know. So, yeah. so okay, so you're going from there. So it's getting bigger and bigger. How long before you go overseas? Oh, uh, I think one of the first ones... I think one of the first ones was um, because we got such a reputation and, I mean, we ended up with, I have to say it this way, we ended up with Warner Brothers, um, their lot, you know, yes. Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason why, and, and they never gave us producers, I just got to back up and say all this, that they didn't give us producers because they, they didn't have anybody that could help us. We knew yeah. more. So they left us alone and Warner Brothers really just said, we wanted you on the label because we like your music we really don't want anybody else to have you because you, you mean a lot. Mm. It, it, we had a kind of a status. Yes. And they yep. wanted to have us, you see. Yeah. So yep. that was that, that was a bit of a big deal. I've just told you. So what was the question? Well, I had to say how, that, long, how long before you went overseas? Because you were, you know, I'm surprised that you stayed, stayed oh, yeah, in no, this I country. Yeah, okay. You Sorry, I, been, I'm back on track. Yeah. The reason I said that is because we'd actually built up a, a, a reputation of having a lot of... In, ended up being approached by um, one of the government bodies of the time. I've forgotten the name of it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was looking at, um, you know, cultural exchange, yeah. this, that and the other. 
Yeah. Um, and we we scored a one-month tour through all of Southeast Asia on green passports, which were the uh, diplomatic-type passports. Right. So so we had a bit of a, a whip around uh, <laughs> the but Asian you know, neck you of know, the woods. You see, so doing Asia, whereas I would have gone, guys, you've got to go to the States. You've got to be in New York, um, you know, and then you've got to go over to Europe. Uh but I will take it back. Very difficult to do when you're married, too. Um, it's a difficult thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, don't, don't forget that there was already plenty of um, bands in the States. That, uh, I mean, we were following then, you know. Yes, you know, yeah, I, mean, I know. That, but that I, really was going to be selling ice to the Eskimos. I, re- I realise real, you know. that, but there's no doubt, there is no doubt in the world that Crossfire had an Australiana feel to it. There is no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, we, we think that we did too. Yeah. Um, those are the, the band that members that are left yeah. um, standing. We we did and we do. And, yeah, it, uh, we did end up playing in... in, in uh, we played at the Baked, baked Potato in, in yes. the States. We yeah. did a little bit of stuff. Yep. And, then, and then we got the invite to go to Montra, and that, that included... Um, a, a stop off in uh, Mumbai. Oh yes, uh, just did one concert there, and then we did the North Sea Jazz Festival as well. Well, tell in, me, in as, as you're doing all these these records, because you've gone up a bit there, but there's a, quite a lot of Crossfire albums. So, is Crossfire staying together through all those those years as a band, or were you all off doing your own things? Um, yeah, we stayed, there was a chunk that we, we stayed together. And yeah. then when I moved up here in 90, it obviously it, uh, it all kind of broke apart then. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it ended up being three members that considered ourselves Crossfire. That was yeah. me, Mick Kenny, and, and Ian Bloxham, Blocko. He's not, co- he's not related to ca- Craig Bloxham from Spy vs. Spy, is he? Say that again? He's not related to Craig Bloxham from Spy vs. Spy. No, no. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, no, and uh, who knows? Um, we ended up becoming Crossfire, mm. and we we deemed it that without the three of us in it, it wasn't to be called Crossfire. Yes, and and we had a lot of different players circle around that three piece nucleus over the years. Yeah, um, lots and lots of different players. So, um, did did you find that? any of the style was changing uh, towards going up towards, you know, historical records and um, uh, tension release and was there, was there a slight change in style or did you keep to that formula all the way through? Well, I, I wouldn't call it a formula, but um, we we just stuck true to our, um, true to our, the spirit of not changing any, anything that we wanted to do for any reason whatsoever. We stuck to that. Yeah. That is, if the record company had come to us and said, and I think this may have been said, uh, could you get a singer in or could you do some more commercial stuff, a little bit more spira gyra, mm. this, that, and the other, or can we give you a producer? We just said, no, you can't. Yeah, yeah. You can't. If you, if you push it, uh, we'll, we'll uh, finish up the contract. 
you know. So, um, yeah. so we get to we get to when you move to I suppose the, is the Blue Mountains, is it? In nineteen ninety, well, when yeah. I moved out of Sydney, no, yeah. I moved up here to Lismore. Lismore, right? So, yeah. So therefore, as you say, crossfires coming to you know uh, an end just simply because of geographics of everybody. Uh, what are you yeah. thinking of doing yourself? So now I'm going to move over to Jim Kelly's catalogue. Okay, so yeah. so we go over there, and the earliest thing we've got here is nine. Is it nineteen ninety three? More than meets the ear. Yeah. Okay, and what's happening there? What are you thinking of doing? How did you approach that? We did you think I should do something like Crossfire, or should I change to a different style of jazz because it's just me, or what? Um. That record, that one threw a lot of my um, uh, buddies and things. They didn't realise that I had an interest in that style of playing. Um, no, I go back to the thing about Crossfire. I've never tried to uh, relive the idea of Crossfire yeah. or make a band, any other band that I'm in, sound like Crossfire. Yeah. I just, I'm a stickler for, I, ne- I never look back very much. I only look forward. I'm always thinking about what I'm going to do, mm. not what I did Now, tell, well, tell me, between Crossfire and there, t- let's say, really starting to promote your uh, solo career, I just want to talk about your guitars too. So what were you, okay. what were you using back then through Crossfire and, uh, and what kind of guitars were you using? And then let's get into your solo stuff. So what, Okay. Yeah, what did you prefer? Right, so through Crossfire, predominantly uh, 335, Gibson um, 335. Yeah. Towards the end of Crossfire's career, I had gravitated more towards a, uh, an Australian-made Stratocaster. An Australian-made by... Yeah. And, yeah, and who made those guitars, if it's Australian-made? The, uh, the Strat I had built was built by a fabulous builder called Greg Fryer. Right, okay. Um, and... Yeah. What did you then take? Did you take that across to your solo career, the same kind of guitars, or was there a change? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, absolutely. But when I did um, uh, More Than Meets the Year, yeah. I, was, I was in a real Jim Hall sort of phase because he's been one of my main influences. I just still uh, love Jim Hall playing. Right. I just, just love it to be. And I, I just wanted to indulge in something a little bit more along those lines. And I ended up playing, and I met Joe Pass on jazz guitar for that album. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then we move on to, uh, now there's Live at the Basement, that's a live album, but we yep. and move to Silent Points, which is a studio album, correct? Yep. Now, in Silent Points, where have we moved to? Have we stayed in the same realm, or are we ex- exploring a few new things? Uh, um well, I mean, it's it's the term salient points, which means, like, in other words, being succinct. Yeah. And uh, there was just there was a tune I wrote that I ended up calling about because it just had didn't have all that much in it. It was very just it's just a few things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I no, I was just following my muse there of um, writing um, what I wanted to write. And I think on salient points, did I, I think I might have done a version of. Bird Eye View, no, it's not on that one, no. It's not on that uh, one? Uh, then, Because the next one is kind of like a cosmic rumba, and uh, that's 
the next one we've got, which is... No, a, I think, I'm pretty sure Bye Bye Blackbird is on salient points. I can see the cover now. Oh, yes, you're right. right yes, it is. It, it is, is, Jim. And, and I, I did a version of that because that's the that's the tune that um, we're back in the Kerry Bedell days where she played me Andre Previn, Shelley Mann, and uh, he was playing Andre Preven and Shelly Mann and Ray Brown, I think, and Herb Ellis. Oh, Herb Ellis, okay. Played uh, by, by by Blackbird. That's where, that's where I first got interested in jazz, hearing that. I went, what is Herb Ellis doing there? How, how can he do that, you know? Can What's I, that all about? Can I ask you to, um, I always like to throw a few things out, um, did you ever like Tom Scott and the LA Express? Course, so absolutely, so, uh, yeah. uh, all, all that mob, you know, yeah, all those players. We followed, we followed all of those people, yeah. And to the, we, we were seeking out every every record that they played on. We were, we were getting to it, listening to and devouring, yeah, everything, yeah. It's yeah. Inter- interesting. So we get to kind of like a, a, a cosmic arumba. Now, yeah, what a crazy looking cover and. Some of those song titles, crazy song titles. Tell me, what the hell's going on there, Jim? Oh, well, uh, you know, it's just my whimsical side about yeah. um, about concocting uh, titles. See, I'm I'm not one of those guys that writes things like Sea View yeah. or um, On a Cold Winter Morning, <laughs> things like that. Right. Yes, I see exactly where you're coming from. So, yeah. When you write instrumental music, you... You can kind of call them anything because there's no lyric content. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I just my penchant for for wordplay. Yeah, and uh, and you know I'm always trying to find the humorous side of everything in life. In a way, mm, uh, mm. it's just that. That's why I, it's like the uh, kind of like a cosmic rumba because the tune I wrote was sort of like a like a rumba. Yeah. I said it's sort of like a, a cosmic rumba. <laughs> I kind of like a cosmic rumba. <laughs> you know, so it sort of became a, it's like, almost like a joke. You know? Yeah, gotcha. A so, word joke, word play. <laughs> well, then we move on to drawing on sketches. Okay. Yeah. So you're pumping these records out like there's no tomorrow. Um, you know, at the time, how are you living? Studio, teaching, how, you know, and this is really no, important no, 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 for no, musicians, please. you know, really important for up-and-coming musicians. My life had changed when I moved up to, uh, 19, in 1990, when I left Sydney, mm. I left the world of the freelance musician, yeah. and I ended up doing close close enough to a 20-year stint teaching at the tertiary level in uh, the Southern Cross University. Gotcha. Okay. That, that's, that's what sustained me, and that's what, that's why I could be, that's what funded me yes. to be able to make to make those records because, as you know, they cost money. And know? and as you're working at uni, was there any combination from the university back to what you were doing or is this a whole difference from being at uni and what's going on there to what you are doing personally on the music side? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean with the well, question. Well, Can you try and yeah. Um, so uh, you, you play your music, you're self-taught, you putting these albums out. Then you're at university yep. teaching, and I presume teaching guitar and music? Yeah. Yeah. And what are you finding that the, the the distance between what you're personally doing and what you're doing at university brings? So is there this... Oh, uh, yeah. Is this a whole different um, 
narrative when you're at uni and what you have to conform to and what you can do yourself personally. Okay, well, uh, this will sum this up. As Crossfire, um, you know, it's early days and 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 the way it it grew its big reputation. Yeah. So that means we weren't living off Crossfire. No one could have lived off Crossfire. Everybody was doing all their other gigs around it. Yeah, and what I, the gig that I ended up doing that I set my sights on doing was I wanted to become a session player. Yeah, and I managed to do that. So I was working in recording studios, playing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and recording pal dog food commercials, playing for Lucky Star, playing for uh, Julie Anthony, yes. playing for John English, yeah, uh, playing for John Sangster. Gotcha. Uh, I was doing all sorts of things, you know. Mm. So that meant I I I knew how to play across a lot of styles. Yeah. It, playing the guitar in a stylistic way. I was playing a lot of slide guitar at one point in my life. Yes. So a lot of people would think, oh, hang on, he's a bit of a jazz guy. No, no, that was just like a, a healthy or an unhealthy interest, yes. depending on your viewpoint, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I was interested in lots of different styles of music what, and just playing. What did you playing find at uni? Well. Yeah, what did you find at uni with students and teaching them and their interests across? So, was it was it jazz that you were teaching at university? Um, is that all? university? Yeah, they at the time they divided the semesters up over yeah. a three year course. Yeah, where you'd have you would have a jazz semester. Yeah, you'd you'd have you'd have a. Um, a funk semester, you'd have a blues semester. Right. So a lot okay. of the stylistic headings yeah. took, would take up a whole semester, you know. So, yeah, what semesters. I'm getting at, so it stayed within your genre, what you're actually teaching. Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. All yeah. right. So yeah. now, so um, as you're putting all these albums out, are you then building your studio up? No. The studio came later. It came more at the conclusion of my teaching career. Yeah, uh, at, at the tertiary level in and the when, and when was that, Jim? Um, that all finished about ten, twelve years ago. Something so around like two, twelve, two thirteen, something like that. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, okay. And uh, that, that's where I got the uh, interest with a buddy to, um, you know, put make a little recording studio and do a few things like that. Yeah, and uh, and uh, then my great mate Russell Dunlop, the drummer used to play in the uh, Mother Earth band, the, the, one of the first bands, Renee Gale. Yes, in. remember them well. He, yep. He, uh, he moved up to the area and uh, he wasn't here for, for so long and then he uh, he passed away. Well, tell me. So you got... I, I was with my other buddy. Three of us were in cahoots for the studio. Yeah. We uh, And I wasn't operating uh, the computer or doing any of that stuff. I didn't, I didn't want to even touch it. You yeah, know? yeah. And... Uh, I was just doing it from the musical side, the arrangements and things like that for people and stuff. Then he died. I had to take over the reins with the, the mixing and, 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 uh, and all that. Mm. My other buddy was at the computer. Then I'd come into it and, and mix it. And then we ended up separating, going our separate ways. And yeah. then I, I went, well, what am I going to do? And I thought, oh, well, make a little studio at home. And, and, that's, and that's where it's I developed did. from. Well, tell me, that's, with the, with the yeah. album, you got to love the drummers. Does that come yep. from that era? Yes. Your partner? Because, I mean, that is, that's, yep. um, I listen to volume one quite a lot and I find that yep. quite a, it's back to a rock jazz roots for me. Um, yep. And is that, would that be true to say that or am I dreaming? Yeah, as um, 
As I've grown, uh, as I've grown older, I've actually folded my interest has folded back into some of the things that first um, drove me to play music. Yeah, because I, I I I became quite a good blues hound mm. at one stage, and I've always loved the blues. Yes, yeah. I remember seeing Freddie King with my wife Jules play at the One Hundred Club in um, London. Yeah, and I remember that being one of the most exciting musical offerings I've ever, ever witnessed. Yeah, there's always it one or two concerts you always remember, isn't there? Yeah, that was that was definitely one of them. You know? Well, where do you go to with Johnny Santo? What the hell's that about? Where the Johnny hell Santo do you get with... Johnny Santo? What's that? Oh, easy. Um, you've, uh, you've heard of the tune Sleepwalk? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, you haven't? Have you ever heard of um, Santo and Johnny? No. <laughs> They did a, a very famous tune called um, Sleepwalk. Right. And it's just a very simple tune, very simple chords. And I thought, oh, I'm going to write a tune a bit like that, a, a really simple one. Yeah. And, and when I started writing it for this project that I was going to do, yeah. the tune became more convoluted, which often happens when I sit down to do stuff. So I went, hang on, I'm turning the original idea upside down, so I turned their names round. So tell so me, Santo should I look and Johnny for... became Johnny Santo. So I should look for art, an artist called Santo and Johnny. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah, they, and there was, there was like pedal steel in there. Right. It's a really, almost like Hawaiian sort of really dreamy sort <laughs> yeah, of gotcha. sound. Okay. It's a really famous tune. Oh, yeah. okay. I'm going to go and look for that. So the, again, the, the, the play on words, you know, I, I, I let the play on words. Like um, one of the tunes was called, uh, one of the albums, Ricky Don't Chew That Number. Oh, yeah. What it was was there was, that Ricky was the pussy cat when I was writing the tune. Yeah. Um, there just happened to be a joint, <laughs> a marijuana joint in my music room. And, and Ricky came over and sipped it when I was writing the song. Wow. So that's why I thought of the title, Ricky Don't Chew That Number. Uh, oh, well, I do like Steely Dan. <laughs> and then we move we move over to duology. Um, now, yep. that's all covers, is that correct? It is, yeah. Okay, what yeah. made you come across that? Did you have a feeling, I want to do something, I want to... Yeah. Uh, yeah. bring respect to the songs that I like with my feel to it and whatever? Yeah, it came about because Peter Martin, mm. the other guitar player. Yes, yes. Peter, Peter was, um, oh, I, oh, here's another, I'll do this story really quick. Yeah. When I was 17 in, in Dubai, I found out who's the, the gun guitar player in Sydney. Right. So many of the older musicians said a guy called Peter Martin. Right. And I found out where he lived, which wasn't too far from D.Y., but Manlyvale. Yeah. And I got onto his, um, the Martins there and rang them and said, is this the right uh, abode for uh, Peter Martin? They said, yes, he's our son. But he's overseas <laughs> at the moment. He won't be back for four months. Yeah. I said, oh, well, I'll ring in four months. I want to get, get a guitar lesson with him. And they said, oh, okay, well, call him. So four months went by and I dutifully called up. Yeah. Introduced myself to Peter and said, I want to, I'd love to come over and have a guitar lesson because I've heard so much about you. Yeah. And he said, um, Oh, I don't know. I don't get lessons really. He said, But I'll still come over. I'll give you one. You know, so I went over, went over for an hour. Yeah. Um, I was there for four hours. And when I left, I was in a band with him. <laughs> oh, you got to love it when people get together. And then you've come back together to do this yeah, and he was teaching at the uni. When I came up in 1990, he'd already been here for a year uh, teaching composition at the uni. Yes. So um, we were buddies and uh, we did uh, quite, a, quite a lot of playing together. 
And anyway, he got the urge again because he gave up playing a little bit there for a while. He got the urge again at a certain point in his life to take it up. And we did two albums with a, band, a trio called Devolve. Yeah. And that and then that, that um, ran its race on a couple of albums. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Peter, uh, I called him Pierre, then Pierre said to me, oh, Jim, got the urge to play again. Like, can I come over and we'll just play? And I said, yeah, come over. And, you know, come sit, sitting in my little studio now. Mm, yeah. And uh, I said, well, what are we going to play? He said, I do let's play some jazz standards. And I said, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, I'm over that. <laughs> said, well, that You're um, over that? Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm over that. Yeah, okay. uh, Yeah, I am. And uh, that's why things are more bluesy and hard-hitting. That's what I enjoy more. Yes. And I said to him, Let, I said, let's make an album, but let's make the tunes of the backdrop of our musical lives but the, the really melodic tunes. Mm. And so we went to a lot of Bert Bacharach oh, type yeah. things yeah. and just tunes and um, Spanish Harlem, you know, mm. and uh, tunes that we just, and, and Motown thing, that we, we just loved. And we said, let's see if we can do them just for two guitars somehow. Yeah. You know? And that's what, that's what drove mm. that one along. Okay. So yeah. tell me, then we get to volume two. Love, you got to love the drummers. Why is there a volume one and a volume two What's going on there with all that? Well, the volume one, volume two is there were just, you got to love the drummers. There were just, I wanted to have a lot of my drummer mates um, play on it. Yeah. And on one album, I, there simply wasn't uh, enough, you know, I needed two albums yes. to have yeah. a good cross-section of the drummers that I love. And yeah. I couldn't get to all the ones I love either. But I definitely needed the two albums. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so that, that's all that was. Yeah. And that's where and that's where we're up to at the moment. So, what is Jim Kelly doing at the moment? I the latest thing, um, which we're just sorting this out now. Uh, the latest thing is I've uh, Barry Leaf, the wonderful uh, singer from Sydney, has come back into my life. We're we're back in cahoots together. We've just finished an EP that I've, um, I've, I've been a ranger, the guitar player, the producer, and the mastering. Are you telling me this I've has got, got vo- vocals in it, Jim? Yes. Yep. Oh, my God. Jim Kelly with a, a vocalist. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah, there's been things that I have done. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know. Um, you know, well, there is, there is the video, because it's not out as a, an audio, the video of uh, you at, is it Bird's Basement, not Bird's Basement, at, at the basement in Sydney. Who was that with? The, who was the guitarist you did that with? Peter Northcote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. you know. There, yeah, I had a penchant for, um, for doing, uh, well, how that came about, because I, I'd always liked the, the thing where Larry Carlton, the great uh, yes, player yeah. guitar player, yeah. ended up with um, Steve Lukather. Right. Who's more, what, way more of a rock player than yeah. Larry? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I called, I called Peter Northcote up and said, "Let's let's do something like, because um, people have often noticed the um, stylistic band of my playing because I was influenced by Larry Carlton a lot, and 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 Pete is definitely more in that heavier rock sort of thing." I said, "Let's do something like Larry and and Steve, and we'll call it the La La." Well, t- tell me Land something. Did, did you have to rehearse that very much? Oh yeah, 
because that yeah, was so, so tight and I thought, well, yeah. these guys don't play together. It's not as if you're touring the country together. And I was looking at it going, my God, they've really had to put some hours in here. Well, we did it, um, I think, we like typical of, of um, how things are done, especially me living up here. You know, we sorted out the music prior, mm. uh, what we were going to play, wrote yeah. the charts prior. Everyone had had the music and the... Mm. The reference points to listen to reference tracks. Yes, and then we uh, we had a very in, uh, long, intense one rehearsal. Yeah, and that and then did the gig. It was just it was tremendous. I I, I love the balance between the hard rock guitarist and the Jim Kelly guitar work. It blended yeah. so nicely in that show, and um, yeah. and it's such yeah. easy listening between the two guitars. It just uh, just fantastic, Jim. Oh, thanks, man. That's well. Um, yeah, we. Uh, that's what we set out to achieve. So that that's really nice for me to hear that. And you know, and I love I love Pete's playing. That's that's why I said, let. Do you want to do it? And he said, Yeah, I want to do it. A fantastic. Know? So what yeah. we're looking forward to now is an EP from Jim. And yeah, an EP. Yeah. yeah. And uh, of, I think this is one of the best things I've ever done. Oh, I really do. Oh, really? Oh, well, in that case, yeah. you've got me intrigued. So how long before yeah. we see a release on that, Jim? Um, we're just, it's already wrapped up. We're just we're sorting that out now because Barry Leaf's involved in it too. Yeah. Um, so we've got to, got to figure out. We're just in the throes of figuring out what to do with it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Got you. Yeah. Okay, that's over to you. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll talk to you uh, later about those early Crossfire albums, which we don't, well, I'll get we don't Jules, have. Um, to, I'll get Jules to talk to you about that and we'll get that sorted out. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Well, it's been... a pleasure talking to you anybody that's listening um jim obviously goes back many many years and is now running his studio and still delivering music to the australian uh public and uh you know we really take our hats off to you it's just if for me personally it's been a pleasure i was a, such a big crossfire fan and as i said early on i used to uh put myself that was what would teach me well well that's yeah. what, what would be the reference point for me was my drumming up to standard or not <laughs> and, and oh, well, you know and i i say to you and as i said the other band i used to put it up against was pfm out of italy yeah and if you look them yeah. up you'll you'll see some kind of similarities there yeah. to to crossfire not quite as jazzy but definitely there anyway it's been a yeah. pleasure jim and hopefully we get to talk again Oh, thanks, and thanks for in, inviting me uh, into this moment. Oh, it, it means a lot to me. Thank you yeah. for being on Laneway. That's what I, all I can say, Jim, okay? Wonderful, man. You're looking after me nicely. Talk okay. soon. Thanks, Clinton. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there it is, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, there's more. Just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day folks, Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.